I'm Aaron Sagers, and this is Talking Strange. Aloha, spooky nerds, and welcome to this experiment of the unexplained, this little show we are calling Talking Strange, which is part of the Den of Geek Network. I am your host, Aaron Sagers, journalist, paranormal historian. Currently, I can be seen on the Travel Channel and Discovery Plus show, Paranormal Caught on Camera. But we are not here to talk about this Aaron. We're here to talk about another Aaron. And this guest, he began his podcasting career in 2015 with the launch of Lore, which is now 191 episodes strong. And that does not count the remastered episodes that they are putting out there. Of course, Lore went on to be a breakout hit globally, aside from racking up nearly 350 million downloads to date. I'm sure it's even more than that uh, as of right this second. Lore was adapted for two seasons for Amazon Prime into a television show. It's also been turned into a three-book set from Penguin Random House slash Del Rey. And this gentleman has toured exclusively with Lore, talking about the storytelling experience, and he has had audiences up to tens of thousands of people all across the country. He is also the founder and president of Grim and Mild Entertainment, This guy stays busy writing, producing, voicing a number of popular shows, including the 2021 breakout hit Bridgewater, which is a great show. And it's getting a second season, which is coming out August 2022. And some of the other shows that come out of the grim and mild entertainment family, Unobscured, American Shadows, Cabin of the Curiosity, uh, Haunted Road. Featuring our friend Amy Bruni, who has been on this chat with us as well. And in 2019, Aaron published his first comic book series, Wellington. Without further ado, let me bring this gentleman in, Aaron Mankey of Lore. Aaron, welcome. Aaron, how are you, sir? <laughs> Aaron squared. I, man, I'm glad that we have we're finally able to have this chat and we've been, we've been talking for a while to make this happen and and we also interact on the social media sphere but we are here now how are you doing it, it's bit it's it's a it was a long road to get here but we figured it out yeah i'm good i'm good uh, good yeah we're, uh, yeah we're both on the east coast in the i'm in the boston area you're in new york so i'm sure we're experiencing some of the same weather and cold and snow and all that good stuff yeah i think you probably had a little bit more digging to do this weekend than I did. We have got about 12 inches and it's still all out there pretty much. Yep. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we got about twice that, but uh, I've got kids that just love to go out there and spend hours in the snow and yeah, it's been, it's been good. Yeah. Well, I, I mean, this was not one of the questions I was going to open with, but when I see a background fooled with such nerdery nerddom, including an Ecto one, a millennium Falcon, uh, a, you know, the mythosaur, well, I guess the the question is, well, have you been keeping up with Book of Boba Fett? That's that's one question I throw at you. I have, I have, I um, I, I enjoyed the references in that last episode, and I hope that I hope that they will lead us to what it sounds like they're leading us to. 
I yeah, me too. I I hope so. Like, oh man, that this could be a whole separate conversation. Um, but yeah, <laughs> I am enjoying it. I am overall enjoying it, and I think that it's a slow burn, and then kind of went into a whole other gear. The other thing I, I wanted to ask about before we get into podcasting and lore, you you mentioned recently on social media your love for Back to the Future Two, specifically the last five minutes of it. Talk about that a little bit for me about what you love about it because I think we're pretty much of the same generation. So I want to hear your perspective on it. But it's that um, I mean, Back to the Future Two. That second half when he's back in 1955, he's back at the Enchantment Under the Sea dance, um, and you're seeing the first movie from a new angle. Um, there's something really magical about that. Um, I really admire what they did, you know, using 1980 special effects, um, lining up shots and all of that to, to do what they did. It, it, it was a really neat take. I know that, the, you know, there's the joke in Avengers Endgame about like, like Back to the Future is not how time travel works, but mm-hmm. in the Back to the Future canon, that is how it works. And they play with it so well. And then those last five minutes from the time he lights the, sport, the sporting records book on fire in the bucket, until the end of the movie, it's just so impeccably stitched together in a way that you're like, you're, you're continuously hit with delight and, oh, that's cool. Oh, now they're doing that. And oh, it's just, I mean, I don't want to spoil it for people, but it's been out for decades. So I think at this <laughs> point, you know, if you haven't seen it, I'm sorry, I'm going to spoil things. But, but the fact that you can watch the DeLorean disappear in the sky and then Rain starts, he turns around and the car pulls up with a letter from Doc that was written. Like it's mm-hmm. I just I love time travel stories. I do. Me too. I and and I you know, as much of a Star Wars nerd as I am, I, I think Back to the Future is just such a cohesive trilogy, even more so than the original Star Wars. And mm. I know that's a bold statement, but I do love that we've already spent two hours or four hours really with these, these characters in this world. And then by the end of that movie, they break it. They break the, 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 what we expect, what we think is going to happen. And then we go into this whole other adventure. Yes. Yeah. I, for, yeah. for you, what were some of the other storytelling building blocks growing up? Like, you know, little Aaron, what were you getting into that you now see kind of shaped what you appreciate about appreciate about stories now well i mean you know as a as a guy in my late 40s i have this privilege of being able to say that i was i was 10 in 1985 like 1985 was if if 2020 is at the bottom of the list of years 1985 is is way up there the music the the films and so in in a lot of ways i was raised on you know, those original Star Wars, the, the early Indiana Jones, anything Spielberg, you know, E.T., Close Encounters, all that stuff. It just, um, you know, TV shows like uh, Amazing Stories and MacGyver and The A-Team, like they're cheesy now, but man, mm-hmm. they were just so formative. So for me, I think there was that, that constant stream out in pop culture of, then it was fresh like then it was they were creating new paths forward with storytelling and it was it was pretty transformative 
Oh yeah, and I I agree. I mean, amazing stories, and and for me, all of those Goonies, Monster Squad. Oh yeah, um, Monster Squad came out a little bit later, but it was this this perfect time of pop culture, and within that, there was sort of this this supernatural thread that was woven through all of these things: the mysticism, the mystery. One of the things that I really got into at a young age, I was a big Twilight Zone fan early on, obviously that far predated the 80s, but there was that. And then the Time Life book series, the Mysteries of the Unknown, and then Unsolved Mysteries. Those were kind of the things that hooked me on the weirdness, the high strangeness pretty early on. What were your what were your building blocks as far as, okay, beyond the Spielberg, the Lucas, the what were your your fantastical elements your paranormal your supernatural fascinations at that age yeah well you hit on a couple of them i mean um unsolved mysteries you didn't know what you were going to get with every episode it could be straight up true crime you know missing person but but there was a really good percentage of just really unusual things that took place and i i loved that show i also there was something something about that end of the show where there was always that chance where he was going to come back on and he was going to say update, you know, and then you're like, Oh, I hope I remember this story. Cause we're about to get this, you know, the finale of it or something. Um, the time life books, I grew up in a, a home. My mom didn't really want me to have a lot of those things. And so um, thankfully her mom was the librarian in town and I would just go there and she'd help me out. But being who I am now, I've gone on eBay and tracked down the whole set and purchased it. And it's, it's in my research closet over there. And, and I think I've got another like knockoff series that's similar. Yeah. Um, those are the kind of things that just feel, they just, they, they set a lot of who I am today in motion. But for me, the, like the single moment, the, the November 12th, 1955, whatever it was, was um, a, a scholastic reader's club catalog you know the those oh, yeah. color newsprint things um they're beautiful and uh, i remember i remember picking up a book we didn't have a lot of money growing up but i managed to get my parents to buy one book in there that was like weird and unusual stories that were also supposed to be true it was like <laughs> odd history weird history kind yeah. of stuff and i remember in particular uh one story it's kind of a common folk legend in the South of a, a farmer who, you know, waves to his family and then steps into the field and they watch him just vanish. And, right. uh, um, it hasn't been backed up by newspaper accounts. It's been traced back to like decades after is the first time it's been told, but it, it's still it like, like the, the sketch that was at the beginning of that story and reading it, I was like, Oh my gosh, this is so cool. History is full of weird things. And that was the moment right there that I just knew like, I, I wanted to read and write about that stuff. Well, I mean, kind of pulling those threads together for me, the, um, those time life books, I, I, I the same, I didn't grow up with a, a lot of money. My family, I was the youngest of five kids, but my parents were definitely big supporters in us reading. And my mom would take us to use bookstore. But the first time life one I picked up was about time travel. And and I think they had a version of that story in that one as well in one of the 33 books in that series, but or about, a you know, someone that reappears, you know, yeah. and in period clothing, uh, you know, seemingly decades later. So I, I totally love those. And it's nice to know that the Scholastic Book Fair continues to exist. It is still a thing out there. Yeah, absolutely. My kids bring it home and, and 
there's a, I don't know if it's genetic or just um, maybe it's in the ink and you, you touch and feel them. You want to order things from them. It's compulsive. Yeah. I no, I love those. Well, now obviously you are working on so many projects and I want to, we're going to dive into lore specifically, but right now, what is a, what is a day in the life of, of Aaron Mankey? Like, cause I'm like, I don't know. I don't know how you are physically. Maybe you have manipulated time and space because how are you getting all this done? So what's the day and the life of you right now? <laughs> I'd like to say clones because that would, it would just make more sense, but. Um, it's out of control of is, with clones. You can't, you know, that's dangerous stuff right there. It is. It is. Um, a lot of it is just sheer willpower. Um, I, I, I often liken it to jogging with a, a riding lawnmower behind you and okay. Look, I've set up release schedules and made commitments and I, I simply have to keep up my pace. Otherwise I fall and that riding lawnmower will, will cut me to pieces. Um, these days it's more like a, like a tractor combine kind of thing. It's, it's big and it's vicious, but I have a lot of people around me to help me run. So that's good. So a, a typical day for me is get my lore responsibilities done first because that's the engine in the plane that everybody else is riding on. And then, um, and then I, then I fit in everything else in there yeah. around, around the cracks. It's, it's sort of that idea of like, get the big rocks in first, get the smaller rocks in after that, and then get the, the gravel, the, the, the sand in after that. So I sit down on a day that I write and I, I'm at my desk by 6.30 in the morning. I write until about 10.30 or 11. I work out, I shower, I have lunch. Um, I'm back in the office and then I take care of emails, interviews, um, meetings with my team, uh, sometimes it's VO for other shows. Cabinet of Curiosities is another one of those never ending, like it's out twice a week with two stories mm -hmm. every episode. So I'm, I'm recording a lot. Yeah. Uh, and someone in the comments did say they would also like some of the big manky energy to finish projects. Yes. I think, <laughs> I think uh, we would all, we all envy that a little bit. The, yeah. And, and you mentioned that you are still writing lore and handling most of it yourself with with your researchers but this is still your essentially it's a little indie project not little but it's an indie project right it is um i i think i have outsourced what i feel like i can outsource i have researchers who they will take a topic that i have just last week we did our our annual writer's room for lore which is a tv concept that i've pulled into my podcast where all of the researchers and I gather together the last two years it's been over Zoom. We all pitch ideas to each other um, and we break them down into the simple structure that they will be in in the episode. We say, look, we could do an episode on this. Um, here's what act one will be about. Here's what act two will be about. Here's act three. Um, and then this would be a really good detail to hide for the end, for the hook at the end. And then um, here's a epilogue story that's sort of topic adjacent, but not essential. And um, and if we all agree that there's material enough out there to do it, we file it, put it on the list, and then down the road, a researcher will grab that little micro outline and they run with it and give me like a anywhere from a 12 to 24 page outline of material. But then after that, I, I take over. I, I have to read that outline. I have to find the theme, the, the thread that runs through that episode, um, and then sit down and write it. And I've learned over the years that it was... There, there was a season where I, I wrote all my episodes and then when it came time to publish them, I would record them the week before 
mostly because that's, that's when I got the ad copy. So I would record them with their ad copy. But sometimes it had been months since I wrote it. So nowadays I will, I will write my introduction, stand up, go in the booth, record it, come back, write the act one, and then go in the booth and record it and just go back and forth. And so by the time I'm done writing in one morning, I have written it and recorded it all in one morning. And then the next day I do audio production. And then Wednesday I write and record. And then Thursday I do audio production. And then Friday I just kind of cry in a corner. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and then have to shovel sh- uh, snow all weekend. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Thankfully my plow guy gets out and shovels too. So. Uh, okay. Uh, it's yeah. good to have a Mr. Plow. The, uh, <laughs> do you, I mean, as you're creating these other projects, do you ever want to set things aside and kind of hold them for yourself where you're like, you know what? Nah, I kind of want to, I kind of want to do this one myself. Um, sometimes, sometimes the, the new show we launched, uh, last month, Grim and Mal presents, uh, the, this first season is called sideshow and it's just all about the American what people would call the, the freak show, you know, the, the human exhibits and things like that. Um, and it's fascinating. And it's also simple as a podcast. It is much like Laura, it is a voiceover track and a music track. So I decided I'm just going to keep the production in-house. You know, something like Amy's show, it, because I'm partnered with iHeart, I can just say, here are files, you know, take Amy's audio files, take all this stuff and, and build it. Because um, it's complex and I don't have the skills for like all these interview stuff. Um, but it's a, a simple storytelling podcast. I'll, I'll still co- hold that close to the best sometimes. Um, yeah. I, I do a lot of my own things. I, I still do my own accounting. I pay the bills. I, I order coffee for the office. Like I, I just like doing everything. <laughs> yeah. I think maybe I correct me if I'm wrong. I think part of this is, you know, is it, do you think it's perhaps because your career really was, uh, you, you were already a, a, a entrepreneur, a self-starter, somebody that, uh, owned their own business, um, before we ever got to lore. So some of these things were cooked in early on as a professional. And so you still know how to just run the machine on, on your own by and large. Yeah. I mean, everything's compound. So, you know, back in the day when I had a job outside the house for somebody else, it was in my spare time at home on my day off that I would do design work and practice and get good at it and work with clients and build that client base to the point where I was able to go off and, you know, 15 years ago or so, I was a freelance designer working for myself. And then you've got more time available to learn new skills. And so it's just now that I've, you get yourself ahead and I, I guess it's sort of like mountain climbing where you're, you're always, you know, moving your tethers and, and it, you're buying yourself more time to learn. Mm-hmm. So at this point, um, you know, right now, I, this week I launched a YouTube channel for myself just to like teach about podcasting and writing and kind of these questions that we're talking about right now. And I've had to learn all of that, but I kind of had the luxury to learn those things because I work for myself from home and, and what I have done for the last seven years has become very easy to do for me. Yeah. It used to take me four days to write an episode, sometimes five days, and I can do it in a morning now. So that is impressive. That's changed a lot for me. I think it was Paste Magazine a couple of years ago. You said that you define lore. Lore is not a mythology and it's not modern urban legend. It's in that sweet spot between. It's more documentable history with dark undertones to it, whether it's supernatural or just sinister. Well, first off, do you, is that still 
how you view the definition of lore or has it changed, evolved? For the most part, yeah. I mean, I, there's, there's sort of a, a zone that I stay out of when I'm looking for topics for lore. I, I try to avoid stuff. This isn't exclusive, but 1960s, 1970s, up till today, I try to avoid. Honestly, like if the folks are still alive, if I'm going to be talking about people that could hear me retell their story, I don't want to deal with, oh, you got this wrong or you shouldn't be telling my story. I try to stay in the public domain and the older stuff. Plus, there's just an attraction of that Victorian era, you know, ghost tale or, you know, early 1900s monster story out in the woods of Alabama. Um, I, I still think that there's value in the more modern urban legends. I just don't feel like they have the same um, character or, you know, the same, the same taste as, you know, an old weird historical folktale. Um, one of the things that happened over the years working with lore is that um, it started off really strong on the storytelling side of things, obviously using history and doing research, but, really strong story. Mm-hmm. Um, when I handed the research off to other people who were better at it than me, the research just got better. And there was a phase there where I really wanted to sort of flex those research muscles and show how, what my team was capable of. And so we were doing things like medicinal cannibalism and um, parasites partnered with colonialism. And it, it, I think it got really heady um, really scholastic in nature. And we've been, we've been working hard to sort of dial that back a little bit to know that we're still doing good scholastic work, but at the end of the day, we want to tell good thrilling stories. And so, yeah, there's that balancing act you're always doing. Yeah. It's an interesting zone to try to find because like my approach with the paranormal or, you know, anything that's kind of of the uh, mysterious, uh, element is that, I like things that have a true factual core to it. And then I like looking at the theories and the possibility. But then there's this middle ground of, well, a lot of people say that they saw that farmer in the, in the fields waving and then disappeared. But, but it may be kind of difficult to actually find a true source or origin. How do you kind of suss out for you personally and for your team what that zone is, what's kind of documented enough, but still you're in a safe spo- safe zone. You know what I'm getting at here? Yeah, you know, I think a lot of it goes back to basics of, of just general scholarship and research, going to, to primary sources. If you can find firsthand accounts from people who are there and they're not separated by decades or centuries, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the we think that King Arthur was what around 300 AD um, if he was a real person at all. But the first, the first, you know, documents about him were hundreds of years later. Um, Things like that to me pushes an idea more into the myth realm than, than history or even folklore. Um, So there's, there's a, there's kind of a wane of the, the heart and the head and the feather when, when we sit down with these things. But I have learned over the years that there is value in, uh, in, in telling a story that we've figured out is actually not, it, it's probably not true. But so many people tell the story and the story itself represents such a powerful idea and, a, and, and in that sense, a truth of its own 
that sometimes it is worth telling that story as long as we're upfront with the listener, we say either before or after. Now, we don't have much documentation to prove that this actually happened, but clearly the story illustrates a bigger idea that we can all learn from and that we can find repeated throughout history. So um, it's a case by case scenario, but yeah. we try to be flexible with it. Yeah. Whereas you do have like Haunted Road approaches paranormal stories largely from a perspective of of um, I don't want to say belief, but, you know, on the side of it existing, you and Lore, it's it's struck me and correct me if I'm wrong. You've never really been too concerned about selling belief. You you treat the story seriously, even if you don't require people to believe it or buy into it wholeheartedly from a factual standpoint is that correct and why is that a a choice well you know a show that comes down very clearly on one side of the fence finds an audience only on that side of the fence Um, if i was purely skeptical then folks who believe in unusual experiences and the paranormal and the supernatural they, I don't think they would find the show entertaining. Mm-hmm. You know, I, it, skeptics would love it for, oh, look how he picks this apart. On the other hand, if I came down and I was purely on the belief side, I think I would leave a lot of skeptical people out in the cold feeling like this show isn't doing hard work to question the stories people have told. So I really do try to ride that fence of, look, here is the story. To these people who told it, this was the truth for them. And we have to respect that to a degree. Um, does it mean it, it all really happened? Well, that's, that's honestly something that we can't prove, but let's enjoy the story. Some of these tales, even if they revolve around a person, it might be a person that is not fully formed as a character through, through history, you know, through the documentation. You know, for instance, I'm thinking like, um, you know, maybe Mercy Brown. Uh, we, we have a lot of st- stories about why we talk about her, but I don't know that maybe there is, but I don't know that there's a lot of uh, evidence about what she was like as a personality, what, what that young person was like, how important is it for you when you're telling these stories to have a character, a person that is really fully formed or are you, are you able to allow yourself to kind of make certain assumptions about the kind of person they might be? I mean, I think there's a degree to which we can make safe assumptions about anyone. You know, being human, we all have some common fears. We have some common desires. And I, I think that that's making those little assumptions can allow us to add some texture to a character sure. that maybe we didn't, we didn't actually have. Um, and, and sometimes we don't, we don't need that strong uh, character spine in the story to hang things off of. You know, I think of the... Um, the Jersey devil episode of lore, you know, years ago where the character is really the string of reports of the creature. Mm -hmm. And so you don't spend a lot of time getting to know the people in the house. You spend a lot of time getting to know the story that they told of what they experienced. Right. And so, you know, again, it's sort of an episode by episode. I have to weigh the, the options and what is the, what is the available history give me to work with? And I do my best there. Are, are there stories that throughout the course of the 191 that have been um, that have been published, are there stories that you think 
throughout lore or even maybe other of the other podcasts from the Grim and Mild that you think are especially good cautionary tales for us right now? Well, you know, I've always really connected to uh, episode 12, Half Hanged, the story of Mary Webster. She's a uh, colonial era, so mid-1600s woman in Western Massachusetts, which at the time was like living yeah. on the moon. Um, and she's accused of witchcraft. And because she's different, because she's an outsider, her, her and her husband, kind of, they literally live on the outside of town. They're poor. She, she swears she's outspoken. She's not very religious in a time when, you know, the town's full of a bunch of Puritans. Uh, and they, they accuse her of witchcraft She's taken to court in Boston. She gets acquitted because she's clearly not a witch um, and they get really upset. And so eventually they blame an illness and a town elder on her and they, they hang her. And, um, and, and you see kind of the worst in society playing out and it's really easy to see that. I, I want to say it was like 1626. So we're talking about four centuries ago yeah. and say that's in the past. That's a real common attitude that a lot of people have about historical stories is, is that presumption of social evolution, that we're better now than we used to be. But I feel like her story really shows that we're not, you know. Um, and the little kicker at the end of her tale is that, you know, they might have hanged her out in the woods, left her for dead on the ground, but she literally, like, gets up the next mm -hmm. morning and goes home and lives for, like, another I don't know, 20 years or something. It's crazy. So as, as a, I'm sure as a constant reminder to those people that they stepped out of line, they, cro they crossed the line. But yeah, yeah I, I think that if there's a theme that's most common through 191 episodes, it's probably our treatment of outsiders, you know, of, of how we handle the people who aren't like us. And and that's not a – I don't go into it with an agenda. Yeah, as you right. know, you, know you, don't, you don't go into this stuff and say, I'm not a revisionist when it comes to history. I just read the story, and you have to step back and say, what is this saying? And, well, it's pretty clear that a lot of these have to do with how we treat outsiders. I And the um, one of the ones that comes to my mind, I know you did – I know this was one of the TV episodes, and it just happens to be a story that I, I, I am – quite fascinated by is I, I believe it's Mary Cleary, the, the woman that was accused of by her husband Bridget. of being a uh, Bridget Cleary of being a, yeah. uh, you know, replaced by a fairy and then tormented. And, and looking at that story, it's easy to say, wow, those people were savages and uneducated and, and in this primitive time, except it was happening in Ireland and not far away. Uh, Oscar Wilde was being persecuted for being a homosexual at the same same time you know so yeah. it's yeah. it's even even in our own time frame and we look at other places we're like wow how could they be doing that yeah we're caught up in our own it, it one of the things that i really try to do with lore is introduce the context of the story as best i can and, and like we were talking a moment ago like we can get lost in the theories and the philosophies behind things and that's not good storytelling but good storytelling is saying, what are the bare essential tools that the listener needs to get this at a visceral level? And so, you know, Michael Cleary, yeah, he burned his wife in the fireplace of their house in Ireland because he thought she was a, a fairy. 
but this was a guy that I think in the, in a matter of months had lost his, his father and his mother. Like I'm trying to remember if they had miscarried recently. Like this was a guy that was, he was, I'm not making excuses for him. Right. There is the context of like, you've got desperation on one side, you have centuries of folklore on another side and Bridget gets sick. She has a reputation as, again, she's, she's strong. She's outspoken. She was earning more than he was. She was supporting mm-hmm. the family. Um, and all these things just sort of conspired against her. And um, when, you, when you have the context of a story, it really helps things come to life. The, the episode that came out this week is, it's about demon possession. And the main tale takes place in England in the 1600s. But you can only understand the conflict going on if you have a very brief break and learn about the difference between Catholics, Anglicans, and Puritans. It sounds boring. People who show up for spooky stories don't want to hear about that. But you have to understand those, that what separates those three groups in order for the story to really hit you more fully. And that's, again, that's another one of those balancing acts we have to do of like, yeah. Can we can we just put this in? Is that enough to equip people or do we have to give it more? I don't want to bog it down with, with boring history, but it's necessary. I think so prior to lore, I was a big fan of the how stuff works, uh stuff stuff you should know, stuff they don't want you to know. The that series, uh stuff you missed in history class, really great series of podcasts. And then lore came along. And they were doing things in a very particular way. And then Laura came along yeah. and was doing, and you were doing things in a, in a very particular way. And since then, we've had a lot of podcasts, podcasts I've been involved in that are doing things in ways that are clearly uh, inspired by what you did, what How Stuff Works did. Now we're at this point that I think it's a great thing. A lot of people are out there trying to tell stories, but now that there are so many podcasts and programming out there that have taken on similar content matter to lore, is it at the point where it's become more of a difficult pursuit for you? Do you think there are stories that you just don't want to go into because enough of these other podcasts have now done it? Or how has like how has the success of your show impacted how you do business now as far as selecting uh stories well i don't listen to other podcasts um (laughs) i don't listen to other podcasts actually um mostly because i I produce about a dozen and my head is full all the time plus when you're writing or you're recording you can't listen to podcasts and i do a lot of that um nobody has my research team nobody writes um, no, you can write like me. I mean, I just write, I'm not claiming that I have a formula that's, you know, unique to me and me alone, but, um, writing style. I mean, you could, when you, when you bump into a show that's moving into that same topic, you can, you can smell the differences. Um, so what, and, and more power to them. I, I think that everybody, every storyteller brings their own unique perspective to, interpreting a historical tale or whatever it might be. Um, so what reassures me is that folks will, they'll always come back to hear our interpretation of this. How are we going to tell this story? You know, we, I think we waited like six years before we did a Bigfoot episode because like you said, there's just so many, like how many Bigfoot TV shows have there been over the last, you know, four or five decades? Um, what more could we say? 
So we decided, well, let's find a way for us to say it in our own way, in, in a very lore style. And, and that's, that's how we approached it. So it, I don't think it makes it trickier. It just, you know, it, it means that we stay focused on doing things that's true to our DNA as a company. Right. I think it was about two years ago, it was announced that you, uh, April 2019, it was announced that you entered into this partnership with iHeartMedia. Lore still is is separated on the side, doing uh, you're doing your own thing with that. But with Grim and Mild and with this partnership, what are... What interests you about other projects out there? Are there things that you are specifically looking for that you're like, I want to bring this into this family that I, I've built? Well, you know, one thing I mentioned earlier, just the the production shops. You know, this is a company that's been making podcasts for, what, like 15 years? Mm-hmm. You know, they... Um, you know, being able to work with my heroes. I mean, you mentioned stuff you missed in history class, um, stuff you should know, stuff they don't want you to know. They, they used to be called Stuff Media, How Stuff Works. Yeah. That's why all the shows are named that way. Um, you know, but Matt Fredericks from, from Stuff They Don't Want You To Know is, is one of my, you know, lead producers. He's, he's I do weekly meetings with him and, and Alex Williams. Um, and Josh and Chuck are friends and, and Tracy and Holly are friends. It's neat to kind of be working with my podcast heroes. Um, but yeah, they, they, they offer, I can bring the ideas now and not have to worry about building the technical side of things. Contrary to what most people would assume, I am really bad with audio equipment. Um, I somehow got a mic and uh, a computer hooked up years ago that sounds good, and I do not mess with it. I, I, that laptop is recording on GarageBand from, I don't know, 2015 or something. Mm-hmm. It's just, <laughs> I'll run it till it's dead, and then and then lore's over because I don't know how to change anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Well, uh, yeah, and speaking of Holly from. Uh... Stuff you missed in history class. The other, she's also a fan of tiki cocktails and Star Wars, mm. which really is just you know, uh, I feel like she's my soul sister over there. Um, the you've you've also uh, I, I recall during my research, you you are a big fan of Neil Gaiman. Is this correct? I love Neil Gaiman's writing. Um, I mean, Neil Gaiman and and Stephen King are yeah, they're up there as as writers to admire. They're very different writers. Stephen King will will spend five pages saying something, and Neil Gaiman can say it in a sentence, um, and both both do it beautifully and appropriately. They're just different people, and I love both of them. I wish I wish this was the moment where I'd be like, "Well, we've got a very special guest, Neil, <laughs> but he's not hanging out in my uh, Brooklyn apartment." But I've, I've met Neil; he's wonderful. He's he's a delight, and and truly someone. Uh, that yeah he's he's such an inspiration for me uh well he's a storyteller he's now adapted uh sandman has been adapted into a uh, an audio book audio play really uh which was is incredible and you've meanwhile worked in tv you've now you've worked wellington worked in in comic books what would be the kind of project that you would want to collaborate with neil gaiman on oh man I don't know that I, I love when he dips into the, the younger audience uh, material, you know, like the graveyard book. 
um, yeah. is a good example. Ocean at the end of the lane um, has elements that are sort of young adult. I, I think it'd be fun to do something, you know, graveyard book has a lot of folklore elements in it where you're sort of living in a world of folklore. Right. And I, I think that there's, there's more to explore there, but um, I don't know that he needs any of my help. <laughs> <laughs> well, the Norse, the Norse mythology, a book that he put out there, it's, it's, it's more strictly myth than lore, but you know, the storytelling that he brings to that really kind of, it brings that pantheon uh, alive in a really fascinating yeah. way. It's, it's a really great book. And anything else, not that you need more tasks, but anything else that you're itching to do, but you just can't get into yet. I, I feel very privileged that I've had a, a lot of doors open over the years for this. Thing. So if you'd asked me a year ago, I would have told you that I really want to, you know, be in the world of audio fiction, knowing that Bridgewater was in the works and, and seeing that out in the wild. I, mm -hmm. I want that to live as a multi-season um, monster of the week plus ongoing plot TV show. Um, I feel like it's got a, an audio cast that we could just pick up and move over to TV and put them to work. Um, and uh, yeah, I, 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 that's a space I want to do more. And I, I feel like I, I, I'm like 90% in a historical documentary folklore world and a little bit in fiction. I've got another fiction project in the works right now, um, audio, and there are more on the way after that. Um, obviously season two of Bridgewater. It's fictions, to me, it feels full circle. Fiction's where I started. Right. Lore fell out of my own personal fiction projects as sort of like a byproduct. And I, I like coming full circle. I wanna do more fiction stuff. Were there any, were, were there any haunted houses, well, not haunted houses, but what were like the urban legends the, the creepy house on the block. What were the things from when you were a kid that you remember that perhaps still lives on inside, inside of adult you that, that you remember from that childhood? There, there weren't any haunted houses or, or things like that. There was a, there was a graveyard outside of town. Um, I grew up in the Midwest. And so for me, when I think of outside of town, there's just nothing corn, you know, pretty much. Um, central Illinois, it's just like north to south, east to west, gridded highways. Every town is about 30 minutes apart from each other. There's corn in between them all. Um, but outside of my hometown was the cemetery that had its own, you know, pantheon of folklore. There was a hatchet lady and um, a ghost train at night that if you, if it came by while you were in the cemetery, the only road to get out was across the railroad tracks. You were then trapped for eternity and all sorts of stuff like that. Yeah. I guess the final question I have for you is coming full circle to your office. Um, when, when lore was a bona fide success, when, when you felt like, wow, okay, this is now, this is my life. What were some of the collectibles, the goodies that you you allowed yourself to get to spoil yourself with anything that you went out and pursued? Well, that right there, that's the that's the big ultimate collector's Millennium Falcon Lego. It took me weeks to build it. Yeah. Uh, and and I was very I was very ready to buy it. I I I could afford it and it felt like a reward. It felt like it, like a a glass of scotch for my nerd soul. And and so um 
yeah, building that was was great. It, it's on an acrylic stand I found on eBay. If, if anybody's ever built one of these, they own it. Go to eBay and search like the the Lego set number and acrylic stand, and it so it, it kind of holds it at a yeah. at an angle like this. And I thrown some LED lights in um, around the the engine area, and it's fun. So that you know, it's little things like that. It's it's the every now and then I treat myself. You know, the the mythosaur skull is another example of. I'll, I'll treat myself. Yeah. Um, but I, but I work from home, you know, my wife works from home. I, I work for myself. I don't have a lot of big needs. So I just kind of hang yeah. out and have toys around me. <laughs> I don't know how you, I, I don't know that you would have time to build that millennium Falcon right now. Probably not. No, probably not. <laughs> or it would take me months instead. Yeah. Yeah. It was, I mean, it was in the evenings. Yeah. I'd sit down yeah. at the table with a glass of scotch and, and work on a little piece of it. Um, I, I, it comes with two books, if I remember. They're they're monster books. In fact, it yeah. might be. Are they? They might be spiral bound. I can't remember. But yeah, it's it's. It was fun. We've 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 talked a little bit about spirits, but what is your scotch of choice? Other kind of spirit. I am a wuss, so I like things that are more on the sweeter side, smoother side. So anything in the space side region, um, Highlands, I'll do. Belvini is probably my favorite distillery. Uh, their Caribbean cask and oh, yeah. their 15, 15 year sherry cask are if I, sp- if I spend my, my spending money on something nice, it's usually a nice glass of scotch or, or a nice bottle of scotch. And thanks to COVID, uh, my local liquor store delivers. So for the last couple of years, I just, I get up my app and I order scotch and it arrives. <laughs> Brilliant. Uh, I, look, I love that Balvenie Caribbean cask. Love it. I'm, I'm a Lagavulin guy as far as the nice peatiness, but man, that, that Balvenie is just on point. I do love that. Um, and it has nothing to do with my show, but look up the Lefroig lore that they have. It's very, very good. There's there There are a fair amount of distilleries that have, I mean, perhaps not surprising because so, yeah. they're so old, but... So many great stories connected to them. I, yeah, Lafroy, Balveni. Uh, I know there's multiple that have like cool ghosty uh, lore type of tales behind them. So we'll look yeah. up the Lafroy episode uh, <laughs> for the story on that. When uh, the first season of Lore came out on Amazon, Lafroy actually sent me a bottle of the the lore scotch just to congratulate me and make that that connection with the word it was nice of them that's a that's a nice perk to have uh yeah <laughs> well aaron uh i'm gonna ask you to hang out backstage but my friend it was so glad it's so great talking to you i'm glad we could finally make this happen uh, just an enjoyable chat um and uh, i hope we get to do this at some point soon maybe uh while watching some Star Wars and pouring out some Balvenie, uh, I say we make it happen once the world returns to some sort of normalcy. <laughs> right. <laughs> All right. Thank you, Aaron. And uh, I will be back with you in a moment. And that, of course, was Aaron Mankey and a hell of a great guy and just incredibly prolific with lore. Like I said, 191 episodes out there and check out Everything else from the Grim and Mild Entertainment family, Obscured, American Shadows, Cabinet of Curiosities, Haunted Road, uh, Wellington is comic book, and uh, Bridgewater, which is a great scripted show. Heck of a guy. Uh, And look, that was Talking Strange with Aaron Mankey, but we're going to be back next week. So, guys, thank you for joining wherever you are. Stay spooky and keep it weird.